Over a range of issues, American public opinion is generally remarkably stable and slow to change over time. It is for this reason that the stark shift in American public opinion on the issue of marriage equality between the mid-1990s and present day was so remarkable. In 1996, only 27% of Americans supported legalizing same-sex marriage. In 2018, that number was 67%. What accounts for this sharp reversal in public opinion? This is a question among many, that this episode's prolific guest has taken up in his research. Dr. Brian Harrison is a political scientist specializing in American politics and public opinion. Much of Brian's research focuses on understanding attitude and opinion change. Brian sat down with me to talk about his research and to also talk about how his experiences growing up in Iowa, his time in the second Bush administration as a political appointee, and his career as a political scientist have shaped his understanding of American democracy and the vote. He talks about what it was like growing up with the retail politics and presidential candidate pizzazz of Iowa, and recalls a fateful encounter with Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley that left a lasting impression. Brian and I both discover that we had a shared penchant for dressing up as Republican presidential candidates for Halloween, and we dig deep into the nature of political disagreement in American politics. Brian encourages listeners to be willing to have uncomfortable dialogue about politics. He cautions that, while we should not expect everyone to just come together in a kumbaya moment of unity, deliberative democracy requires that, at times, we find ways to have meaningful conversations with those who disagree with us. Inspired by the authenticity of elected officials like Harvey Milk, Brian still sees each and every vote, no matter the election, big or small, as an opportunity. More specifically, even in the darkest days, voting and engaging in democracy more broadly are opportunities to enact change. Welcome to another episode of What Voting Means to Me. for doing this. This will be fun. It'll be good to catch up as well, for sure. I think it's probably good for me to just give you a little bit of background because we're both researchers about why I'm doing this. So I have been doing a lot of qualitative interviewing for my research and I felt myself getting really frustrated being hemmed in by like how challenging it is to get qualitative research out there and published, at least sort of in the context of election sciences. But in any case, you know, I, I just have been for a long time wanting to do something that felt like research, but that just felt more human and felt like I could sort of bring my interest and passion about voting and democracy out to the rest of the world. Yes. I get it. That's what this was. Yeah. It was researchy, but also real worldy. Yes. Yes. I get it. And I, I, I love, so you are my second, well, you're my first PhD, like political science PhD who's been on, but you're my second political scientist who's been on. And I, of course, want to interview a cross section of folks. If you know any Republicans you want to talk 
or if you know any Trump supporters who want to talk or non-voters who want to talk, please send them my way because, you know, it's, it's thus far, there's been a pretty interesting cross section, but it's more challenging, I think, to find folks who are willing to engage in these kinds of conversations because they're on alert. They know and are correct in assuming that I'm very, very liberal. And, you know, I don't want it to be about sort of that dynamic, but it can be hard to get there. In any case, the podcast is called What Voting Means to Me. And, you know, that's the question that's at the heart of the interviews that I do. But I also, as I mentioned, like asking folks about their democracy biography, as I'm calling it. And Mm -hmm. so my first question to you will be sort of broadly, tell us anything about yourself that you feel called to share in terms of your work or your interests or, you know, any, any part of your, your background, sort of that big, you know, tell me about yourself question, uh, and feel free to sort of dovetail that into the work that you've done in political science as well. And then we can get into, uh, some of the more podcast specific questions. Um, I'm Brian Harrison. I'm an American politics specialist, uh, with a PhD in political science, I also have a master's degree in public relations and advertising. And so those are sort of my research interests and my general interests, the interplay between public opinion and identity and American politics. Most recently, I have had two books published with Oxford University Press this April, one on transgender rights and findings, uh, strategies and tactics that induce people to be more supportive of transgender rights by meeting them sort of where they are in the process of not telling them what they think and feel is wrong, but maybe leading them in the right direction to coming to the conclusion that there are ways that they can change for the better. And the other book is A Change is Going to Come with Oxford University Press. It's about the importance of disagreement and concrete ways that we can improve the way that we talk about politics to those around us in seemingly small ways, but ways that in the aggregate can actually be pretty uh, impactful. I teach at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. And I also started and run a organization called Voters for Equality, which focuses on political engagement among LGBTQ people and allies uh, and focuses on information um, and also ways to get involved, uh, which seems straightforward, but sometimes it's difficult to find the right niche for you when you're interested in politics, but you don't really know what to do. So that is who I am and what I'm doing. Um, To get into where I come from, uh, I'm from Iowa originally, which I think is interesting, politically speaking, because I've met every major presidential candidate since 1980. Oh my God. Oh my God. Um, That's right. And that's just the nature of Iowa, right? That's up until this this cycle, <laughs> we'll see what happens in the future. But, yeah, maybe we can um, have some a conversation about that in a little bit. I would love to know well, your thoughts. <laughs> well, I, I went to the caucus. I was at a caucus location this year. Oh wow! Um, because I myself am recording a podcast, and so so <laughs> I what we we actually recorded a ward in Iowa on caucus night, and went around to interview people as they were caucusing got caught some of their conversations, caught some of their disagreements, which is particularly interesting. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I have a soft spot in my heart for Iowa, even though 2020 did not, you know, go as well as it could have. But you asked me at one point, and maybe I'm jumping the gun, 
sort of some of my earliest political memories. Yeah, yeah, we can we can dive into that now. I'll offer some observations. A, say that I have had a chance to look over a change is going to come and I'm hoping we can discuss it a little bit more in depth because it's a really it's a really beautiful piece of work and it's so well written from the first opening couple of paragraphs I felt very like my attention was very grabbed if I'm remembering the voters for equality group has a pretty big following right you've developed that into a pretty big organization over over the years it's kind of a funny way that it got started it was 2011 and the New York state legislature was set to vote on marriage equality and they would say okay we're going to vote at this time of this day and then that time would come and certain members of the legislature would find some stall tactics and they'd say, nope, just kidding, it's going to be tomorrow. And then they would get to that time of day and they'd say, nope, sorry, got moved until next week because this one person is holding this one piece of the legislation up. And it drove me crazy because I thought, gosh, how many millions of people are banking on this to get married to the person they want to spend their life with? And so I started this page called Vote Out Anti-Equality Legislators. And it was railing against these uh, Republicans, these moderate Republicans in New York who said that they were supportive. But then when it came to actually voting, they didn't do it. So I did that for a couple of weeks and I thought, huh, this is kind of negative. This probably isn't the best framing. And so I rethought it and transformed it into what's now known as voters for equality. Rather than voting out people against equality, why don't we encourage people to vote in the interest of equality? So that was born in 2011, and it was just sort of a fun thing that I did, posting um, things that were good distractions from everyday life, from graduate school and writing and things like that. And then I think when I got to about 50,000 followers, I thought, huh, this is more people than I actually thought. So I started devoting more time to it and started sort of cross-promoting with different Facebook pages, and it pretty quickly grew to about 300,000. Mm-hmm. Um, as social media pages do. And then it sort of plateaued around half a million for a bit now. And so I'm perfectly thrilled with the half a million people that follow every day. And I try to post things that I think are meaningful to a wide swath of the public. But I have followers from all over the world, all 50 states. Mm -hmm. And a couple weeks ago, I had a reach of about 5 million per day. So wow, sort of by mistake, but here we are. Yeah, yeah. And I, I will say, so I'm, I'm a follower of the page. And I do note, you are quite engaged with your following as well. It seems like you you have a good back and forth with them, uh, which perhaps is reflective of the work that you do on political disagreements. So we can we can get into that more in, in a little bit. Um, but it's something sure. I, I have observed in my own following of the page. So yeah, now would be a great time to jump into that democracy biography question. And for, for me, there really, of course, it's not a wrong answer to this. I'm, I'm curious about getting into folks, you know, memories of democracy and sort of what like your earliest experiences were of understanding that, oh, I, I live in this place where I can vote. Well, or, you know, if you're if you're realizing that as a as a young kid, you know, though I can someday vote any sort of things that jump to mind would be really cool to hear about. Sure. My earliest political memory was actually from my grandfather. I was born in February, and one of my birthdays when I was a young kid, I don't remember which, fell on President's Day. And I noticed the banks were closed. And I said, well, that's weird. Why are the banks closed? And my grandpa said to me, well, that's because it's your birthday. 
And he said, anyone whose, whose birthday falls on President's Day will become president someday. And I was probably four oh or five or God. six, I don't remember. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. I'm going to be president someday. So as a little kid, I would take the newspaper as it came in and spread it all out and try to read it and understand what was going on. Of course, I had no idea what was going on. I would try to watch the evening news and get a sense of what the world was about. And of course, couldn't make heads or tails of it as such a young kid. But it was very clear to me. It was a very serious thing. I had to inform myself and to know what's going on in the world because I was going to lead it someday. And I was a little anxious um, thinking, oh my gosh, this is a really big responsibility that I have because as a future president, I really need to know what's important to folks and what's important to the world and all these things. Anyway, so it wasn't too long that I realized, well, it's unlikely that I'll, that I'll become president someday. I mean, I'm not ruling it out, but <laughs> it's, probably, it's probably unlikely. But it did instill this idea that it's important to know what's going on. It's important to know about your own interests and the interests of other people and how those interests um, are parallel and sometimes perpendicular. And mm. so that's that was really sort of my first... My first political memory, um, I was a different president every Halloween. That's just what I was as a kid, which is super nerdy. So, but no, no, you, you and I have this in common. Really? <laughs> a little bit. Just just a little bit. Uh, in 1996, I dressed up as Bob Dole. Nice. And I went around. And I, I, I think, well, my dad was a Republican. My mom was a Democrat. And I think Bob Dole was a little bit more recognizable just because um, he stood a certain way and he had... I think it was an injury from from uh, a war and I was able to sort of replicate almost sort of like replicate his behavior a little bit more easily. I felt as a 10 year old for some reason. And I went around on Halloween and was like, you should vote. There's an election in a couple of days. So oh, that's awesome. So, yeah. I, OK, now I want to know which presidents you ultimately dressed up as. Well, I was Reagan a couple of times just because he was president at the time. I was also H.W. Bush. And then another time, I think I was Nixon one year too. All Republicans, which is interesting. My parents, like you, like one of your parents, um, were and are Republicans. So that's really framed my presidential mm. choices. I don't think FDR would have been welcomed so much in my. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, you know, since you posed the question of my memories, it was a combination of this really early anxiety is not the right word, but this really it, this measured importance that I needed to know what's going on. It's important. Everyone should. And I remember being a little kid and not everyone did. And it struck me as odd. Mm. Why, why don't you, why don't you understand? Why don't you didn't read the news? You didn't watch the news. I don't understand. And so I'm still a pretty heavy news consumer and maybe that's why, but coupled with living in Iowa where you got this sense that you were pretty important because mm -hmm. everyone came, everyone came to your hometown in person. Um, and, you know, retail politics being what they are, you were expected to meet as many people as, as you could as a candidate. And as a citizen, a lot of people took it very seriously and went to rallies, even for people that they didn't think they supported, they would still go. And I remember being a kid thinking that's pretty cool. You're going to go hear somebody who's pretty famous, say some stuff that you may not agree with, but... A lot of people I know did it anyway. I think growing up in such a retail politics-oriented place gave me the sense that politics was really interpersonal mm -hmm. in a way that contemporary politics doesn't feel like sometimes. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm curious if there are any particular moments from your time uh, hearing from candidates in Iowa that stand out to you. Is there any one that felt especially powerful or impactful on your your political views? Not a presidential candidate necessarily. They were. It was all sort of benign stuff, retail stuff. But I do remember I was probably 19 or 20 and Senator Grassley Mm. gave a campaign event on the lawn of the house across the street from ours. Might've even been 17. I don't remember. And I remember I went and I asked the question to him because he had just come out against uh, a certain, I don't know if it was don't ask, don't tell. I don't remember what it was, but something he was on record as being, sort of anti-LGBTQ. And so I asked him the question, um, why do you think that you have the the right to tell gay people how to live their lives? Wow. And there was gasps. And I wasn't out at the time. There were gasps in the crowd and he gave me a non-answer. So I don't think he totally understood the question. But that's one moment where I thought, you have someone here standing in front of you. Why wouldn't you ask a controversial question? It, it wasn't mean-spirited. It wasn't a gotcha question. It was really, you have this view and you know, why? I don't understand. Help me, help me understand. And people said to my parents later, Oh, I can't believe your son asked that, asked that aggressive question. And I thought, well, it wasn't aggressive. I was, I was asking a pretty simple proposition in my mind. So that's one that sticks out in my head that these, these people are people. And when you get them in a room, ask them questions and don't be afraid. So, yeah. And it's so interesting hearing that story. Um, having now, uh, worked through some of your book and thinking about the value, I think that you're placing in your work on being courageous enough to ask uncomfortable questions, obviously doing so in a way, like you said, that isn't mean spirited, but I, I think that, I think that's something that's sorely needed in today's politics. So in addition to sort of the, the, you know, earliest democracy memory question. I love asking folks about their first vote. It's my understanding you are a voter. Do you have any particularly strong memories of that or, or, of, or of any sort of particular vote that you've taken in your life? I, in 2004, I think that was the most interesting for me. I was 24, so it was not my first time voting, but I was a White House appointee in the Bush White House. Mm-hmm. And I remember wondering whether I should vote for Bush, which I didn't want to do, but I wanted to keep my job. Hmm. And I remember thinking, okay, I actually, I quit my job before the election, a little bit before the election. So it wasn't as consequential as I'm making it sound. But I remember my calculus was like, okay, I want to keep my job. I like what I'm doing, but I really don't like the Bush administration. So what do I do? Vote in my personal self-interest so I keep my job or vote the way I really want to vote and vote for John Kerry. I ultimately voted for Bush because I had moved to Illinois and it didn't really matter in terms of outcomes. But I remember I was really, my friends were laughing at me. They're like, well, it doesn't matter. You're just, it's just one vote. I'm like, no, it's kind of symbolic. Like I worked for the, I like a lot of the people with whom I worked, but gosh, I don't really want him to be president anymore. So that's the first thing, I don't know, that's the, that was the second presidential election I voted in. And it was an unusual one because my job hung in the balance, I guess. Ultimately, you had made the decision to quit before the election. 
I did. It was for a variety of reasons. It was the right time to move away from DC. I had lived there for about four years, um, undergrad. And I'm from, like I said, I'm from Iowa originally. I want to get closer to family. And I thought, you know, he might lose. And if he does, then I might as well be established somewhere else. So I hedged my bets. He won, obviously, but <laughs> um, his administration survived even without me. So that's all right. Yeah. So, so you, um, I, I think are, oh, I'm going to be just totally guessing on the statistics here, but I, it's my sense that you are a bit unique in the world of folks who go on to get their PhD and that you, you had a career and you had a life before you eventually went on to study political science. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how, if at all, any of these earlier experiences with the political system shaped your decision to then like become someone who observes it and studies it systematically? So I didn't have a long career in politics, but I had a, a short one. So um, I don't want to overstate it. But I will say one thing that I noticed working for Homeland Security was there was a very sharp delineation between types of employees, between political appointees, between careerists, between contractors. Um, it was made very clear which one you were. And that sort of rigid caste system was interesting because I was 22 white house appointee. Um, and I was really an assistant to one of the assistant secretaries at Homeland security. And I would get phone calls and be given information that I had the clearance to get obviously, but I really had no business having, mm. um, in terms of operations. And so one time someone called and told me something which I could, would relate to the proper people. And I said, why are you telling me this? I, I'm just a policy assistant. You know, why are you telling me this? And they said, well, you can be trusted. You're an, you're an appoint, you're an appointee. Mm. And so I think it was from the vice president's office, but it's, it was interesting to me that I was, I was an insider. I was an appointee. So I could be told things and be trusted in a way that people who have worked for at the time, you know, DOD or DOE or uh, I'm sorry, energy or who, wherever it was. Mm -hmm. These are career people who have been doing this for 25 years. And I'm the one who got the information first. It was interesting to me because I thought, well, okay, I mean, you can, I can't be trusted. Don't get me wrong, but it seems odd that you would come to the 22-year-old rather than the 55-year-old. But I was a safe space, right? I was someone that I could be trusted because I was one of them. And that struck me as strange because I didn't feel like one of them. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a conservative. I wasn't really a Republican any longer. And it begged the question, why do you think I'm one of you? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that became clear and clear over time that I had to hate other people. It was us. And then the people you hated, you mean, meaning was, the career, the career bureaucrats, the, not necessarily, not necessarily sometimes, but okay. it was the Democrats. You had oh, to hate the Democrats. okay. Yes. Yes. So I was an intern for the national Republican senatorial committee in college. And one of my jobs among many others were to find the most unflattering photos of democratic candidates that I could find things where, you know, they weren't wearing makeup or they were sneezing or whatever I could find to, to, for them to use photos in ads that made them look as awful as possible. And both sides do it. It's not just Republicans. of course. Yeah. I, I was gonna, I was um, going to say, this is something I say to my students a lot when we're talking about unsavory tactics, you know, it's important to recognize that 
political parties are strategic creatures. Uh, both of them Absolutely. are. Yes. But my experience was with the Republicans, and that's I sort of got in that track. And then when I got the political um, appointment, I had already sort of showed my loyalty because I had worked for one of those organizations before. And it struck me, I don't hate anyone, really. Um, certainly not Democrats I've never met. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I was sort of figuring out what I wanted to do with my career, I wanted to do something where I didn't have to hate anybody mm. because that was a big part of progressing, right? You had to show that you were a loyal foot soldier and I, I wasn't. And that became clear to me pretty early on. I could be trusted. I was competent. I did my job, but I felt mm-hmm. like there was a certain lo- um, loyalty that you were expected to take in partisan politics that I just didn't, didn't want to take. So I tried to figure out what does that mean? What am I going to do from here? And that's when I pursued the master's in public relations and advertising because it was about relationship building. It was about branding. It was about establishing trust. And I think that implicitly, of course, I didn't think of this at the time, was attractive to me to think about ways to connect rather than to disconnect. And yeah. that's what drew me out of politics into, into research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's so interesting, again, sort of I want to like draw the thread between that experience uh, in my mind and just sort of piecing it together. And, you know, what's what you're talking about with this new book that's come out, what you've done with the research on LGBTQ rights and LGBTQ politics. Um, It really sounds like, you know, I would imagine there are some folks who would be in your position who would, for whatever reason, maybe have the personality type to be drawn into that sort of us versus them team teamsmanship mentality for lack of a better way of putting it. And it, it sounds like that more or less had the opposite effect on you. I don't want to sound too angelic. I have my team and I root for it. So it's not fair enough. um, (laughs) Fair enough. And this, everyone should get along and hold hands and we're going to be fine. So I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture, but yes, I do agree with your sentiment that, you know, you can't yell at someone and expect them to listen to what you say next. You just, it just doesn't work. And so our, my first book with my co-author, Melissa Michelson, looked at how to increase support for LGBTQ rights. And it looked primarily at the idea of shared identity mm-hmm. and how you can leverage identities that you have in common with someone else in a way that makes them more likely to listen to you and more likely than hopefully to, to be persuaded by what you're saying. And that was really fulfilling just personally, just because it was, it made it clear that there was a way that you could do, you could do research to try to bring people together. It sounds super cheesy, but it's true. And I felt good talking about the research. It, it wasn't focused on me. It wasn't focused on something text that's important to a textbook, but not in real life. Mm-hmm. And we worked with over a dozen advocacy groups around the country to collect data and to think of research questions. And we would go to them and say, hey, we're researchers. We're not looking for money, which is always their first question. <laughs> and all we want is to help you answer questions that you that you have. Is there a community that you want to reach? Is there a message that you're not sure about? Mm-hmm. What is it that we can do to help you? And so that was really rewarding because it was taking real well, quote unquote, real world stuff and making it academically interesting rather than the other way around. And so that sort of that frame of mind led to the the other book that I just mentioned on transgender rights, which, as I said earlier, is essentially about meeting people where they are 
um, not shaming, not telling them why they're wrong, but saying, hey, you know, if we can boost your identity, if we can boost your ego um, and your self-esteem in who you are, will that make you more likely to support outgroups? Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases it does. In some cases it doesn't. You'll have to read the book to figure out when. <laughs> and um, I will. <laughs> <laughs> but in the, in the meantime, one thing that struck me, both in terms of voter store quality and just sort of regular social media use, was the number of people who begrudged the nastiness in politics mm-hmm. and then would post something horribly nasty, horribly nasty themselves. Mm. And I thought, you can't both want abstract civility while you were engaging in uncivil discourse. Mm. And it's, it was conservative, Republican, liberal, progressive, Democrat. It was everyone. Uh, it wasn't just one dimension on the ide- ideological scale doing this. And I thought, I think we're really bad at disagreeing with each other. I don't mm-hmm. think we know how to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I pursued my latest book, A Change is Going to Come, with that in mind. Everyday conversations matter. People are alienating themselves from friends and coworkers and family members because they disagree with them. As you know, in the political science literature, there's a whole bunch of reasons to, to, to suspect that we're socially sorting we are yeah. sorting based on identity and geography and we're, it's becoming easier and easier to do so. And I knew I wasn't going to solve the problem, but I said, hey, why don't I try to write a book to give everyday people engaging in everyday conversations a few more tools to speak in a way that increases the likelihood that someone's going to listen. Yeah. And so I hope I did that. The way that the book is written and the way that you lay out the tools, I did make some notes because I, I pulled out a couple of things that I I, I wanted to just make sure I, I raised in, our, in the course of our conversation. Sure. So bef- before I do that, though, I think that for me, one of the most compelling parts about this argument that you're making, oh, it feels even weird to use the word argument because argument is like such a pejorative term, but the, the, um, <laughs> your, your thesis about you know how to have uncomfortable conversations and the importance of talking to people who disagree with you, you do a really compelling job of framing it in terms of like the value of deliberative democracy. And it's, it's just interesting to think about in the context of, you know, this podcast is called what voting means to me, but it's a podcast about democracy. And I I love it when the conversations I have move beyond, you know, just the vote to these other aspects of living in a deliberative democracy. It's a really beautiful book. You have these really great things that you lay out, like what not to do in conversations about politics. Don't approach discussions as a competition. Don't resort to shame, which you've already mentioned. And you say approaches to considering status differences and shifting your focus to interpersonal dynamics to create a strong environment for meaningful conversation. And there, I think you're talking about like that shared sense of identity, right? That's one thing. And it's also just a practical thing. Don't do it in a bar. Oh, do it, do it during where you're drinking. Like, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of little mistakes that we can make that, you know, when, alcohol is involved little things become big things really quickly at least personally speaking I've had that experience (laughs) I've had Um, that experience too and and so I think the biggest thing that I wanted to to sort of change the narrative around is the idea of persuasion being something easy changing our expectations in terms of persuasion so it seems as if a lot of people think that if I can just find the perfect thing to say, 
I'm going to change their minds. They're going to mm-hmm. take what they had in their head before, wash it out, have nothing, and I'm going to tell them what they believe now. And that, as you know, that's that's not realistic. That's not yeah. how it works. And you know, persuasion is a process. It's trust building. It's um, you know, it's a lot of listening. It's active listening. It's some of these things that sort of we intuitively know, but when it comes to actually doing them, we, myself included, don't always actually do them. Mm-hmm. So, especially at the sort of the inner chapters of the book might seem a little pedantic at first, but I don't think they are. I think people... No, no, I don't think they are. Feel like they know what to do, but they don't do that. As I was reflecting on the way that you were writing and sort of the tone that I felt, honestly, it felt a little bit like a conversation with a therapist (laughs) because therapists are very much trained, in my understanding, to, to not tell their patients what to do, but to like create the conditions for them to realize it themselves. And, you know, it was just something that sort of struck me as, as I I sort of felt like I was being very like gently persuaded is, is maybe one way to put it, but it didn't even feel like persuasion. I'm also a naturally curious person. So I think it depends on the personality type of, of whoever you're interacting with, of course. But yeah, the, the tone was, was so gentle, not at all pedantic, in my opinion. We both know there are so many different interacting factors that will affect how someone's going to react to um, this kind of information or this kind of advice. Yeah, I, I think that something that you laid out, the what not to do in conversations that struck me is really important is to not think about discussions as a competition. So much of what happens online and in person feels like it's ego-based and you get that little hit of being right. But that reward doesn't last for that long, at least in my experience. I'm not sure what your experience is. Yeah, I think both the reward is short-lived and the damage is medium-term and sometimes long-term. Yeah. I think when you really stop to look at it, Yes, you can get that short-term high of saying, I, I said the perfect thing to you to make you feel less than and make me feel better than. And that's cool, I suppose, sometimes. But the damage it does for your future potential in conversation is far more profuse than just that momentary victory. So it's hard to do. I, I feel like in a lot of ways we're programmed to feel like we have to find the perfect jab the perfect witty thing to say on Twitter, mm-hmm. um, the perfect post on, on Facebook to, you know, our relative that disagrees with us to make them feel just so embarrassed and awful about themselves. And I don't think that ever works. I just, I don't think it does. As someone who may or may not have engaged in that kind of behavior myself in the past. Oh, me too. In my, in my <laughs> experience, too. that person never reads that and says, gosh, they're right. I've been wrong my whole life with what I've been thinking. I really am going to pursue knowledge in a way that I never have before. Yeah, that didn't happen. So why do we keep doing the same thing when nothing good comes of it? Um, yeah. And I still do it. I still do it. I'm sure you still do it. Everyone yes, does it sometimes. Yes, we're, we're human. I, we're human. Of course we do. But I, 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 my, my goal is to get people to be a little bit more cognizant of it, of it when they're doing it. Yeah, yeah. And I think for me now, I'm at the point where like the own internal shame I feel for having said something nasty. And, you know, I think that in many ways, at least for me, social media, when you're typing something, I happen to think about it a little bit more, but it also amazes me that I see people just 
putting stuff out there seemingly without forethought about how they're saying it. But yeah, oh my gosh, I 100% you know, have those people in my life that I just want to be like, what? Like, what the heck? And it's it can be really challenging to recognize when I'm, I would say, acting from a place of ego versus, versus acting from a place of wanting to understand and um, mm-hmm. maybe also wanting to be understood, which I think is different from acting uh, than acting from a place of ego. No, I, I'm, I'm reminded of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote that you used at the beginning of the book. And there's also sort of another way I, I like to think about it in terms of, you know, we measure, we should measure the way we respond to people and to ideas in terms of how they serve our long-term goals, not in terms of how they serve our ego. And I think, you know, and you can sort of correct me if I'm wrong or, or update that, but it seems to be kind of the message you're looking to get across. It is. And it's actually being a parent makes you think about these things too. Yeah. Um, I just had a, I just had a, a piece picked up in salon.com that talked about some of the similarities between dealing with kids and dealing with conservative parents, not in terms of behavior, but in terms of strategy. And when I thought of, okay, what do I, what do I really want this book to be about? It's, it's about that. It's about what justice Ginsburg said. You, there's, there's a way that you can lead it's not about sort of shying away from a fight or running away from a fight. It's about diffusing the fight in the first place yeah. and leading in a way that people are going to want to follow you rather than fight you. Uh, you know, again, pie in the sky, but, you know, pies are meant for the sky. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I think in, in this time of the Trump administration, it's become even easier to be pejorative and s- small on social media. And Agreed. I tried very hard to not do the things that I don't want other people to do. For example, I don't um, publicly or really privately, I don't know why I put it that way, comment on Trump's appearance. Yeah. Because I don't think that that should happen, particularly to female candidates and politicians. Agreed. So why would it be okay to do that with this other politician? You know, again, I fail, but it's all about holding ourselves to a higher standard. And one of the criticisms that I got, especially when I sent some of the earlier chapters out to people, was essentially, well, you know, I'm doing these things and other people aren't. So really, it's their problem. And that I took that, I, I heard that and I tried to build that into the rest of the book because you don't control what other people do. Yep. It would be nice if you could sometimes, I guess. But the only thing you really can control is your own behavior. Yes. And, you know, if you go to your drunk uncle or your cousin or your sister-in-law <laughs> that you disagree with and they just scream at you and, you know, say all sorts of nasty things to you, that that sucks. That hurts. But yeah. you can know that you at least you you did the right thing. You made an attempt. And maybe that won't have any that won't make any difference. And even if it doesn't, you know that you did the best you could in that situation. But more likely, it will have an effect. It'll have a small effect because the next time you talk about it, maybe it won't be quite as contentious. Yeah. And those are those little wins that we sometimes forget about, but I think are actually pretty important. I think so, too. I think they lead to something bigger in the aggregate. And if you as an individual can allow that moment of rage that you are experiencing to flow through you rather than just purely react to it, 
you know, then the person who you are disagreeing with, who knows that you think differently than them, sees someone who is compassionate and listening while they are raging. You know, I think that it may not be an immediate payoff, but there is the potential for some real long-term payoff there. I, I've had that yeah. experience in like one-on-one conversations. And I think on the most general level, it's important to model the behavior you want other people to do. Yes. If I'm, ye- if I'm yelling and screaming, why would I expect anyone else to do anything different? Yeah, yeah. And, and that sort of brings me um, the, the, the second thing you mentioned for folks to avoid, the shame piece of it. I mean, there's, there's been work done outside of political science on shame uh, and the role of sort of shame in therapeutic settings. And we know so very much that... Shame, which like I define as this idea that someone is bad rather than that they've said something bad or that they've behaved poorly, but like that someone at their fundamental core is a bad person or you yourself are, we know that that's not productive. It's a very different feeling from guilt, guilt over something that one has said or something that has happened, I think, because that's more adaptive. Um, I don't know. I would, I would love to know sort of your political science perspective on like what shame is and what that looks like. I think shame triggers reactants in hardly ever good ways. Mm. So I think the the outcome of a conversation based in shame is often going to be in reaction to the conversation. I'm sorry, in, in reaction to the emotion yeah. rather than in reaction to the conversation. Yeah. Um, and that was that's a bit of what we talked about in the book about transgender rights is mm-hmm. one of the most common reactions or emotions to transgender people and just transgender identity generally is disgust. Mm -hmm. People think it's gross. People think it's weird. People think it's all sorts of things. And you can try to tell them why they're wrong about all of those things, which inevitably will result in shame or often can result in shame. Mm -hmm. And as you know, rarely does anything good come from a conversation that evokes shame or you don't have to agree with what they say. But you have to try to get them into a mindset to move past it and Mm -hmm. say, okay, I understand that you think it's disgusting. A lot of people may agree with you, but what's the next step? Mm -hmm. Take take that disgust, embrace, embrace it the way that you feel is necessary. But at your core, don't you think that fairness is important? Mm. You may, you may think it's disgusting, but imagine what it might feel like. To, to do X, Y, and Z, or to, to be X, Y, and Z. And so it wasn't um, a strategy of wrong telling, mm, because mm-hmm. I know personally when someone tells me that I'm wrong, I dig in and I me tell too. them exactly. Me yeah, I mean, too. it's not a great personality trait of mine, but here we are. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm right there with but, you. <laughs> but if you feel like someone's listening to you, even if maybe there's a kernel of your being that thinks that you might be wrong, they listen to you and they didn't tell you that you're wrong. And so that interpersonal trust is super important. And mm-hmm. I think I try to foster that in, in my friends and family because not everyone in my family group agrees with me. And, but they know that I will listen to them and they know that even though I'm a political scientist and I probably know more about it than they do, I'm not going <laughs> to make them feel stupid. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to make them feel less than, and I think that's important. The The word that just stood out to me there was that interpersonal trust. And it just made me think about, you know, what you were saying how these things, they do take time. And I think it's important to emphasize that, you know, neither you or I are talking about not holding people accountable. 
And like you said, this isn't a, you know, a kumbaya, let's all come together, hold hands, um, you know, be in union type type situation that we're talking about here. It is about having uncomfortable conversations and creating the space for those to actually be effective. It was also important to me because people early on tried to say, well, this is just about civility. Mm. And I'm like, oh, no, no, it's not about being civil. There are certainly times in our lives, in our political lives, to yell and scream. Mm-hmm. There are lives at stake. There are people being murdered because of who they are, because yes. of the way that they look. There are, especially now in the time of COVID-19, there are real legitimate life or death things going on that we should by all means scream about at the top of our lungs. Yes. It's not, it's not saying um, mediate yourself in every domain, politically speaking. Mm-hmm. I don't, and I wouldn't expect others to. Mm-hmm. But like you said, it's it's about interpersonal communication. It's about one-on-one chats. It's about social media usage. It's about sort of the mundane conversations that we have that actually aren't so mundane in the first place. Yeah. So I really take the issue strongly with people who say, your book is about civility. I'm like, no, it really isn't. It's about respect when respect I'm curious, you know, reflecting on this election year, I know you are someone who follows politics, uh, you know, even outside of your own research, um, that you are really engaged. And there's so much that is changing in all aspects of elections, how campaigns are being run, how elections are being administered because of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is a bit of a Pollyanna-ish question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, uh, because I know that while you are a realistic person, you also have some optimism. Is there anything in particular that's sort of giving you hope about this election year in the midst of all of this, this pandemic wildness that is going on all around us? And it's okay if there isn't really and truly. (laughs) I'm trying to think. I think I get moments of optimism and hope on state and local levels a Mm -hmm. lot. Um, We live in Minnesota and we have um, what I think is a fantastic governor who is taking steps that you wouldn't think a governor would need to take, but he's taking them anyway. Things mm-hmm. like securing, not so much in Minnesota, but in other places, um, uh, mailing out ballots to every voter. Mm-hmm. Um, that just came out, I think, in, in Milwaukee. But it's those sorts of things that make me have hope to say, you know what, people are realizing that voting isn't secure yeah, Your voting right is not absolute, and it should be in, in a lot of ways. We think that it is, but in practice, for folks who are not white, who are not of 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 the upper crusts of the of SES, for people who live in rural areas, there's a huge swath of the American public that is one election away from losing the right to vote in the first place. In my mind. So I think some of the things, I don't see anything on the federal level. I see Democrats trying. Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota yes. is trying to push this bill, um, sort of normalizing election reform across the country. But none of it's passed. But I'm glad that some state and local officials are taking up some of these things. Um, Stacey Abrams in Georgia is fabulous. And yes. He's doing great things. So I see some of these leaders doing some really wonderful things. And that makes me optimistic, even though... There are sure a lot of reasons to not be optimistic if you if you want to find them. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'll, I'll echo those sentiments about um, the efforts that state 
and local leaders are making, I mean, Minnesota has long been a leader in um, advancing reforms that make it easier to vote. Uh, They've had same day registration there, I think, since, oh, I should know this. I want to say late 1970s, early 1980s, I think, Uh, and consistently has um, some of the higher voter turnout in the United States. And yeah, Amy Klobuchar on the on the Senate floor uh, has been a champion of that kind of of legislation. I'm wondering if I could get you to expand on something um, that you said, uh, these, you know, various groups of folks who are not in positions of privilege, you know, folks of color and low income folks, uh, you know, folks who live in rural communities, you know, saying that they're, they're one election away from losing their right to vote. Could you expand a little bit more on, on what you mean by that? I think the most egregious thing that I can think of recently was the Wisconsin primary a few weeks ago where, and I'm making up the numbers, but it was something like there should be 300 voting precincts and there were three. Uh, it was, I think, 300 and they were boiled down to five. Yeah. But it was it was something in the hundreds boiled down to single digits and it forced people, particularly during this time, to be in close quarters. But even, even otherwise, it was pretty easy for them to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, there were lawsuits, there were arguments made, and ultimately it was deemed to be constitutional to do so. Mm-hmm. And I think, gosh, that could be precedent. That could be something that certain segments of the of elected officials could try to replicate across the country. And it, it might be sort of the, the tactic that abortion activists have taken. Mm-hmm. Abortion isn't illegal. It's just so inconvenient that it's almost illegal. Death by a thousand um, cuts, I think, is sort of the... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think of that in Wisconsin. Could you vote? Sure. But you have to drive so many more miles than maybe you have time to. Maybe you don't have a car. Maybe you can't take time off of work. All of these things that, you know, make voting uh, more Mm -hmm. difficult were employed just a couple weeks ago. And I think if it had worked, if I don't know what worked means in this in this sense, but maybe if turnout were way down or they found that certain segments of the population were wildly more disenfranchised than others. Mm-hmm. This would have been a sort of a roadmap for other places around the country. And in a lot of ways, I think it will be. By way of wrapping up, I want to circle around to the sort of big question that's at the heart of this podcast, um, which is kind of an abstract question. So you can interpret however you like. But I, I'm wondering if you could reflect on in these last few minutes, what the act of voting means to you. It can be you know, who do you think about when you vote? Um, do you feel like your vote has meaning? Do you feel like it gives you a sense of efficacy? Does it not mean that much to you? It can be sort of interpreted in any way that you like, but uh, I would, I would love if you could reflect on, you know, the years that you've been a voter, sort of what that act has meant to you. The word that I think of the most when I think of voting, I think is an opportunity. Mm. Every election is an opportunity for change. Um, we know that there are counter-majoritarian reasons that elections may not be as impactful as they could be, mm-hmm. but the real, the, the realistically every election could signal a new renaissance. Every election could signal a huge change in something. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm disappointed with something that's happening, um, when I feel like things aren't going in the right direction, I, I take solace in the fact that, okay, what election's coming up, right? Mm. It may not be the presidential election, um, but there's something that's happening locally 
there's some, you know, special election for some office. Yeah. yeah it's, it's small, it's park commissioner or whatever it is. Um, but it's still, um, it's still an opportunity to change something. And so I think when you feel like there are changes that need to be made, you make them wherever you can, even if it's not the, the ultimate change that you want uh, to have happen. Yeah. So I also think of, um, I, th- I always think of Harvey Milk. Um, mm, mm-hmm. And there have been, you know, when I've taught LGBTQ political history in, in um, one of the classes I teach, there are so many more people other than just Harvey Milk, but he, he stands out to me, I think. Um, maybe it was the movie a couple of years ago. Uh, yes, yeah, the Sean, the Sean Penn movie, I believe. Sean Penn yeah, movie. yeah. But I think, I just think of the bravery it took to stand up in front of people, even in a place like San Francisco or in California generally, um, and just say, be your authentic selves. I am, and I got elected to this office. Yeah. I think he knew that he was in danger, mm-hmm. um, but he did it anyway. And I think that's always inspiring to me because I think of, you know, again, the word opportunity, how can we use voting? How can we use other political behaviors to enhance the opportunities to enact change? And even in the darkest days of being sad about what's going on in the world, somehow that never dies. And yeah. I hope it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, no. And, and, and having, you know, known you now for many years, um, and, and this is something I, I, I like to sort of have the, the disclaimer that, you know, this is a friend of mine that I'm, I'm speaking with. Um, uh, I, I have always sort of noticed this sense of, it's like realistic optimism about change. Um, you know, you are someone who has a very good sense of the world and you study the world, you study politics. Um, and I, I also want to touch on something you mentioned about um, local politics. This is something that's now, I think, come up in, I'll, I'm not doing any sort of systematic qualitative analysis on these interviews yet, but, um, you know, the the five interviews I've done, local politics have come up as sort of being a place to potentially affect change. And that's what I tell my students too. You know, I, I, I say we spend in my you know intro class and it's unfortunately a lot on the federal government um, just because of the length of the semester. But I always remind them that local politics is where a lot of real government happens and real change can happen. And um, on the the piece about sort of when you're talking about Harvey Milk, it really to me emphasizes the value of like a vote being connected to not just like descriptive representation, but representation in terms of someone who is modeling what it means to like live as an authentic person and live as your authentic self, and which is... The importance of that can't be understated. You know, I I remember even though I wasn't a supporter of Hillary Clinton in the primaries in 2016, I was in the general, the feeling I got when I saw her get the nomination, like I'll never forget it. It was one of the most powerful moments in my life and I've been observing politics for a long time. Well... Brian, thank you so thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I I know that you're busy. You're a dad, and you've got books that you're writing, and you know teaching that you're doing with your first graders. So I I really really <laughs> really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thanks. Anytime. It's been fun. Hopefully, I can do it again. Sometime. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's all for this week, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Much appreciation, as always, to our sound engineer and composer of the podcast theme music, William Lee. Until the next episode.